Welcome to the sermon podcast of the Midtown Fellowship Granny White Congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. We are currently preaching a series from the book of Genesis called Back Where I Began, the search for meaning in the book of Genesis. It has been said that we can't know what we are supposed to do unless we know what story we are a part of. In the book of Genesis, God tells us in no uncertain terms what story we are a part of. We are a part of his story, a story that he has been writing since the beginning for our good and his glory. We're so glad you've joined us for this podcast, and if you are able, we'd like to invite you to join us in person for worship. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 at 3410 Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. Good morning. Like, I don't want to be weird about this every week, but that was pathetic. We'll try it again. Good morning. Now you are here in church. Welcome to church. My name is Gary Anderson. I... I don't know who I am. I'm the new guy on staff. I've been here for some months. Um, official title, I think, is pastor in residence, um, but we're working on a pastoral transition here at Midtown Granny White. I am um, knee deep or waist deep in preparing for, not preparing for, I'm in the middle of it, of getting ordained in the denomination that our church is a part of, the PCA. Uh, that's a big process. Um, a lot of some joy, a lot of pain in that process. I uh, feel a little bit like Cinderella today. They've let me down out of the tower. Um, but I have to clean the bathrooms before I'm done. So uh, we are continuing our series in Genesis today. And I want to invite my friend Dave Hunt up. He is going to read our passage. It is Genesis 3, verses 14 through 21. The word of the Lord from Genesis. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for you were taken out of it, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Thanks, Dave. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, there's, a good, there's a good possibility I'm going to trip on this rug as I step backwards, so just promise you won't laugh if I do. Uh, have you ever been in a season of life? Have you ever had a season of life? Can you think of a season of life this morning uh, that was like transcendent? Like everything was right. All things were right in the world. No stress, no worries. Have you ever had a season of life like that? I know a lot of us right now are like, I would love to experience this season of life that you are talking about. Uh, I had a season of life like that, and it was in the spring of the year 2000. It was my senior year in high school. Uh, we're talking about like, let's think about mid-May of my senior year in high school. Uh, I knew where I was going to college in the fall. Uh, I knew what I was doing for work that summer. 
Uh, it was the last month of school, and so all the real work had been done, and the senioritis was real. Uh, my birthday is June 2nd. My birthday is June 2nd. <laughs> no presents. Just cash. <laughs> and so I was a couple weeks out from my 18th birthday. I, was in, I, lived, we grew up, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, Cleveland, Ohio winters are a little bit different than Nashville winters. Uh, they're brutal. And so when spring comes, it's like sunshine, long days, there's grass, the trees are green. It was like, it was a season of life where everything felt right. Now, am I importing a little bit of nostalgia into this story? Probably. But senior year, everything taken care of. One day, middle of May, my senior year in high school, I'm driving home from somewhere. I don't, I don't particularly remember where. In my 1991 Chevy Cavalier, baby blue, that's it. Um, all the windows were down. Uh, but in order to do that, before I left, I had to climb in the back seat and crank the windows down because they all were cranks and not automatic. And so, again, sun's out. Everything is right in the world. I'm cruising down a residential street not, not far from where I live that was kind of in between two major roads. Uh, radio is cranking, probably Green Day or Backstreet Boys, something like that. <laughs> and as I pass a little, a little short cul-de-sac to my right, like in the blur of my peripheral vision, I see a police car. And you all know, all of you who drive, you know that feeling, right? Where your stomach sinks into your ankles. And for the next like three seconds, which feels like three years, you're like, is, is, is he going to come out or is he going to stay where he was? And he comes out and the lights go on. And I know in my head what is happening, but in my heart, I'm like, he's been called to another emergency. And... <laughs> And so I just need to, you know, gently move over to the side of the road to give him enough space to pass by me to get to wherever he's going. And so I do that. And unfortunately, I was the emergency. And so he pulls in right behind me, lights on, siren blaring, um, and gets out of the car and comes up. And I, the window's already rolled down. I was going to say I rolled down the window. It was already rolled down. And he asked for my driver's license and registration. I had to ask him what the registration was because I was 17. I'd never been pulled over before. And, uh, and I give it to him. He looks at my card, and he's like, Mr. Anderson? And I'm like, I'm 17, man. We call me Mr. Anderson. He's like, Mr. Anderson, uh, do you know why I pulled you over today? And I was like, maybe I was going over the speed limit. And he's like, Mr. Anderson, I have you at 38 on my radar gun in a 25 mile an hour zone. And I'm like, he must have got me after I started braking. <laughs> so, so that's great. And so he says, you know, he says, wait here and I'll, I'll be back in a little bit. So he goes back to the car to, you know, run his background check or whatever it is that he does. And he says it's for a little bit. He's back there for two hours while the entire town drives past me in half my high school, just heaping shame, shame on me as this police car is behind me with his lights on. And he, eventually he comes back up and, and he says, Mr. Anderson, uh, seeing as how you've never been pulled over before and you have a clean record and your 18th birthday is just two weeks away, I'm just going to give you a warning today. No ticket. He said, slow down and don't let me pull you over again. And I'm like, praise the Lord. And I got out of there as fast as I could, abiding by the speed limit while I did it. Uh, I was guilty as could be. Like, I was, I was dead to rights. I had broken the law. I was, I was deserving of every amount of ticket and punishment and fine and whatever the, the law allowed him to give me in that moment. And he essentially said to me, I forgive you. 
He essentially said to me, I'm going to let this one slide. I'm going I'm to let you off without having to pay the penalty for what you just did. He's like, I'm going to give you mercy in this moment. Now, that really messed me up for the next three times I got pulled over. Because every time I got pulled over after that, I was like, oh, I'm sure this will just be a warning. And every time it was like, ticket, fine, nailed me. Uh, one time in New York, I had to go to court. And it was just a normal speeding ticket. So I got pulled over three times in the next six years after that. All of them tickets. I haven't been pulled over in 18 years, okay? So <laughs> I learned my lesson. Don't think I'm some crazy driver. Don't get caught, all right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Isn't there something in us uh, that kind of like, likes that story? Not because I'm in it, but just, isn't there something in us that is drawn to stories of forgiveness, that is drawn to stories of mercy? Aren't we drawn to situations? Doesn't, like, don't we want to cheer a little bit? Doesn't something well up inside of us when we hear stories about someone who is guilty, but they receive forgiveness and mercy? I don't want to take it like too serious right off the bat, but some of us will remember back in 2006, a young man went into an Amish schoolhouse in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area, and he took the lives of five young Amish girls. And the world lost its collective mind. The world had no idea what to make of the response that came out of that Amish community when that happened. Their message was, we forgive him. They reached out to his wife. They sent her gifts they brought her into their community. We didn't, the, the world didn't know what to do with the forgiveness that was offered from that community after that heinous crime. Some of us will remember a little more recently at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a young white man went in there uh, for a prayer meeting and took the lives of nine African-American parishioners. And when their families had the opportunity to speak to him over a video conference at his sentencing, they said to him, we forgive you. We're drawn to stories of forgiveness. Our heart longs for stories of forgiveness. And we know that those stories that I just uh, told you are the exception. They're not the rule. That's not the way it normally happens, but we love them. And I would submit to you that this is why. I think there's something inside of each one of us when we hear a story about mercy and forgiveness that is drawn to it because we want it for ourselves. I think we know that we need that for ourselves and it stirs up something inside of us because we, we see stories of mercy, we see stories of forgiveness and we think, I want that. Which is why I think when we come to the text that we are looking at today, a lot of us feel a lot of tension about it. Because as we come to the text today in Genesis chapter three, coming off the heels of last week where Adam and Eve ate the fruit, did the one thing that God told them not to do, Randy preached a phenomenal sermon last week on that passage. If you were with us, you know that. If you weren't with us, I can't commend you high enough uh, that you go listen to it. He, he talked about how we learned about the anatomy of sin. We, we, we learned about the anatomy of temptation. And this week, we learned about the consequences of sin. And I think there's some tension in that for us because when we come to this passage and we're, we see what has happened and what has transpired and we're like, all of this over a piece of fruit? Like, was God just having a bad day? This passage that, that Dave just read for us, it is just, it is dripping with judgment. It is dripping with curses and condemnation. It is sweat and toil and pain and hardship and dust and enmity and death. And isn't there part of us that wants to be like, like, God, couldn't you have let this one slide? Like, 
they're just about to turn 18. They've never been pulled over before. Like, couldn't they have gotten off with a warning this time instead of like everything being destroyed and totally messed up? But I think that we're going to see, I hope that we're going to see as we move through this passage, that actually the response from God, the consequence for the sin was totally appropriate. And there's actually a deeper story that we're going to tell. So, so here's the first thing. There's three things I want us to draw out of this passage this morning. Here's the first thing that I want us to see. First thing I want us to see is that we are in a mess and it's our fault. We are in a mess and it is our fault. So just to give the quick summary, which most of us know this story, but God creates the world, creates uh, everything in it, creates the animals, creates Adam, gives him Eve from, takes a rib out of his side, gives him Eve. He, he, It gives him some jobs, some work to do, gives him dominion, gives him relationship, tells him be fruitful and multiply. And he says one one thing. He enters into a covenant with them. And he says, there's one thing. I just need you to obey me in one area. There's a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I need you not to eat that fruit. If you eat that fruit, if you don't eat that fruit, life, life abundantly, relationship with me, all good. If you eat that fruit, if you disobey me, there will be consequences. And in just an amazing commentary on the human condition and on the human heart, Adam and Eve are deceived by Satan in the form of a serpent, and let us not miss it. They are also deceived by their own hearts. And they do the one thing that God told them not to do, and they eat of the fruit. And that brings us to the passage that we are looking at today, which is the consequences of that sin. Do you remember, or can you think about, as we think about the first two chapters of Genesis that got us to this point, what God gave to Adam and Eve. He gave them some things. He gave them some some jobs and some gifts. And so here they are. I've talked about them a little bit already. He gave them dominion. He said, you're to work. He gave them work to do and to have dominion over the earth. He gave them relationship. He gave them each other in marriage. They were made for each other. Uh, He gave them a... um, It's a command. He said, be fruitful and multiply. They had had another job to do, like work the land and then have babies, which was great. And then he gave them relationship with him. He gave them life and communion with him in the garden. And as we work through these verses that we are looking at today, we are going to see a essentially one-to-one correlation of the, the, the curses and consequences that God lays down relating to the things that he had called his people to do up to that point. So pick me up in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So God had been like, be fruitful and multiply. But now after sin, it's going to be really hard to be fruitful and multiply. Continue with me. Uh, Verse 16. Now I have an older version of the ESV, so it's even different than the one that Dave read. It says, uh, your desire shall be for your husband. The newer version says, contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. If you look at 10 translations of this verse, you'll get 10 different translations. Scholars are all over the board on what is actually being said here, but I'm going to do my best to simplify it, whether it's contrary to or desire for. Here's what God is saying. I I gave you each other for relationship, and now that relationship is going to be hard. Continue with me. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat the bread. So God said, Adam and Eve, you have dominion. You, you, you rule over the land. You work the land. I have a job for you to do. And now after you have sinned, that job is going to be hard. And then finally, he says, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So all of the good things that God gave them, they still are there, but all of them are marred by sin. They all are going to be painful and hard. They all have been um, changed 
because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And now here's the thing. When we look at this passage and we're like, okay, why do I have to be punished for what these two knuckleheads did way back when, when God created the earth? Like, why is it that, okay, so they sinned, they didn't obey, they messed up, they had consequences for it. But I mean, at least for me, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, there's part of me that wants to be like, so why why do I get punished for that? Uh, as I just mentioned, I'm in the middle of uh, working through ordination in our denomination, and so I'm learning or being refreshed on a lot of stuff I learned in seminary, a lot of um, theology. And one of the things that I've spent some time with over the last number of months is what uh, scholars call the doctrine of original sin. Now, when I say doctrine, some of you, like, eyes glaze over. It's like, okay, what, which basketball game is on first this afternoon? And others of you are like, perk up, and you're like, this is what I'm here for, all right. But this is like, this is an essential tenet of what we believe and what the Bible teaches. The doctrine of original sin is not that Adam and Eve originally sinned. That's true, and they did. The doctrine of original sin is what Paul teaches in Romans 5 when he says that Adam and Eve's sin was passed on to everyone who descended from them. So, so the doctrine of original sin says that, yeah, Adam and Eve sinned, but we all are sinners too because we come from their line. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. David says in Psalm 51:5, in sin did my mother conceive me. We're all born into sin. Genesis 6, 5, God looks at the earth and he says, every intention of the heart is, of man is evil continually. And so I don't want to be like Mr. Depressing this morning, <laughs> but we, but we got we to get this in order to understand what's really happening in this passage. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned and they had consequences for it, but if we are descended from Adam and Eve and if you're a human, you are, they have passed that sin on and we have received it and we have made it our own and we have expanded it beyond what they ever even envisioned or imagined. We are in a mess and it's not just their fault, it's our fault. This is not a perfect illustration, but it hopefully gets a little bit, um, a little bit at the idea of what's going on here. There is tons of research, uh, very well-documented research, that some people are born with a genetic predisposition to addictions like alcoholism. Like, you're, literally, you're, there are people whose genetic makeup predisposes them to have a higher probability of struggling with an addiction like alcoholism. And so for someone who has that genetic code, they can look at their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and be like, it's your fault. But also, if they struggle with that addiction, with alcoholism or whatever else it is, they are still the ones taking the drinks. And so, yes, they received it in their genetic code, but they also bear some responsibility for it. And that is what original sin is. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned. They made a mess of everything. And man... I would have done better if I'd been there. No, I wouldn't. Like, none of us would have. But we have taken their sin. We got it from them. We have made it our own. And so every consequence that God talks about in these verses, we own it too. Not because we just came from them, because we have sinned ourselves. We're in a mess. And it's our own fault. Thank you, Gary, for this very uplifting uh, and encouraging message this morning. Um, it's easy, I think, like when we look at this to be like all of this over a piece of fruit. Really? Like all of God's blessings, all of perfection of existence, communion with him in the garden, all of this, they traded it all for a piece of fruit. And it's like, really? And then I think about my own life. And as a pastor, one of the, one of the great privileges of my job 
is um, most of you probably didn't look at this passage at all this week. And I've spent all week looking at this passage. And one of the things that has been most ingrained into my heart as I've spent all week with this passage is that is not just Adam and Eve's sin. It is my sin. Because I do the same thing every single day. Every day, God is like, here, here are my blessings. Here's what I've called you to. Here's how I've made you to live. Here's how I hardwired your brain and your heart. Here are my ways, walk in it. And I look at some piece of fruit and I'm like, that looks good to my eyes and my heart wants it and I'm gonna take it. Every one of us has done what Adam and Eve did and we do it every single day. And now here's the thing about the place where we live in a place like uh, Green Hills in uh, Nashville it is really easy for us to um, either deceive ourselves and say my life is not a mess or to just work really hard to deceive everybody else and put a lot of lipstick on the pig that is the mess of my life. Someone's like, did the pastor just call my life a pig? You're gonna have to answer that for yourself. Um, we do a pretty good job of making it look on the outside like we got all our stuff together but when you read the verses that we just went through, like, does it not strike at the heart of almost everything that causes us pain, suffering, disappointment, and frustration? Like, this is not an accident, the way that God pronounced these judgments, because they are the, the core of the things that, that remind us that we are sinners and we live in the midst of a sinful world. I mean, um, childbearing? Anybody had like any pain in childbearing? Not a single dude should put your hand up in this moment. Thank you. Um, like it's true. In pain shall you bring forth children. But here's the deal. It's more than just the act of giving birth. Like any one of us who has children know how much pain and frustration and hardship is tied to the, to the children that are in our lives. I mean, I love my children more than my own life. But but there's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of pain and turmoil that comes along with raising kids. There's a lot of pain and turmoil if you want a child and you can't have a child. Like there's just so much hardship wrapped up in that. We feel this intimately. Uh, relationships. Anybody have some hard things in, in any relationships? Like you ever hurt anybody? You ever been hurt by somebody? Is, is like anyone have some hard things in their marriage? It was at this point in the first service that I told the congregation, uh, I spent the last four years on the West Coast in a very multi-ethnic church, and they talked to me a lot more than you do. <laughs> and that would have been a moment where I would have heard a lot of amens. <laughs> Relationships are hard, and people have an incredible capacity to hurt us, and we have an incredible capacity to hurt other people's. How about work? Anybody have some hardship at work? Like any stress or strain or frustration or disappointment there? Now, now, you're, now you're, you're mumbling. You're mumbling, but we'll take it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Like, uh, I, I, and the point I'm making, that, that just like spend a few moments with this passage, and it's like this is not just what Adam and Eve felt whenever that was way back when. Like this has carried all the way through, and we feel this intimately today. So we're in a mess. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. But that's only the first half of the sermon, I think. The second half is this. The king is known by mercy. The king is known by mercy. You see what I did there? I love that song. 
and um, I'm hopeful in this moment there are not copyright issues with me using that as a point uh, in my sermon. But here's the deal. When we come to this passage, and as we've talked about for a number of minutes now already, I think it's really easy for us to just see judgment, curse, like overreaction. Dad was having a bad day and he flew off the handle and it wasn't like, like that big of a deal. The heart of this passage is not judgment. The heart of Genesis chapter three, verses 14 through 21 is mercy. God's goodness and graciousness and kindness and love and his salvation are woven in and out of every one of the pronouncements that he makes in this passage. All the things that we have just talked about, I'm gonna try and get them in order. God called them to work the land, to have dominion over the animals. And and post sin, post eating the fruit, God is like, that is gonna be hard. But you still can do it. God is like, I created you for work. I created you to be creative. And though it's gonna be harder now and there's gonna be more pain and disappointment and frustration, you still can do the thing that I have called you to. God made us for relationship. He made us for other people. He made us, some of us, he made us for marriage. Some of us, he didn't. But whether he did or not, marriage, we all are made for relationship. And God is like, you're still made for relationship and you can still have relationship. It's gonna be harder and there's gonna be more pain and disappointment and frustration, but you still can have relationship. God was like, be fruitful and multiply. And it's gonna be harder and it's gonna hurt more, but you can still do the thing that I have called you to do. The last few verses of Genesis chapter three, we didn't read them and I'm not gonna for the sake of time read them now, but even in God's banishing them from the garden, there is kindness and mercy. Like we think of that, it's like punishment. You can't be, get out of my presence, get out of my sight, get out of here. But if you look at those last few verses of Genesis chapter three, God says, why does he send them out of the garden? Lest they eat from the tree of life and live forever. God is saying, you are covered in sin and shame right now. You are separated from me in a way that you were not designed to be, and you can't live forever like this. So he sends them out, even in the banishment from the garden, there is kindness and there is grace and there is mercy. God's love is all over this passage. I had a friend uh, who told me this story once. He knew a family that had nine kids. Uh, They had taken Be Fruitful and Multiply very seriously. (laughs) And they were living, uh, at the time that this story happened, they were living in in a house in a development that was still being built. So their house was completed, but there were a bunch of other construction sites in their development where houses, new houses were being built. We know how that works in Nashville, do we not? Uh, in the summer, nine kids, uh, mom would just send the kids outside and basically be like, you need to be back at, at dinner time. And so, and don't come back before dinner time. And so they would go out and, you know, do whatever all day long, playing outside in their yard and in the neighborhood. One night, uh, everyone came back for dinner except for one child. The six-year-old didn't show up and didn't show up, didn't show up. And so they started looking around the house. They started looking around the, the yard, couldn't find him, spread out over the neighborhood. And they found him at one of the construction sites for one of the new homes that was being built. And at that site, there was a uh, 55-gallon drum of tar that was being used to put the shingles on the roof. And for whatever reason, you know, who knows how a six-year-old mind works, uh, he had gotten into that drum of tar and couldn't get out. He was up to his neck and just stuck there because he couldn't get out. If he could breathe, he was fine, everything healthy, but he was literally covered in tar. And so they've pulled him out, and you can imagine you know, what that was like. And they're walking back to the house, and the mom, on the way back to the house, looks at this kid and goes, 
I do believe it would be easier to have another one than to clean you up. <laughs> and I can't, I, I can't help but wonder if God thought the same thing that day in the garden. You know, it hadn't been that much work to create Adam and Eve in the first place for him. We talked about that back in, you know, the first couple of chapters. Word of his mouth, he created the world and the universe and everything in it. I, I can't help but wonder, because if I was God, I probably would have been like, you know what? You are such a mess. I'm just going to start over. It'd be a lot easier than trying to clean you up. But that is not what God did. For God so loved the world because of his great love for his creation. We're two chapters into the Bible and everything has fallen apart. And in chapter three, God says, I am going to put into place a plan to make this all right again. Genesis 3.15 uh, all of scripture is God breathed. All of it is inspired by God. All of it is profitable. And so I hesitate to say this, um, but I'm going to say it. Genesis 3.15 is one of the most important verses in all of scripture. It, it is what scholars call the proto-euangelium. That's a Greek word. Proto, first. Prototype is the first of something. You, prefix that means good. Angelos or angelon means message. Message, excuse me. Uh, we translate it angel. It means messenger. Proto-euangelium. First good message. First good news. First gospel. Genesis 3.15 is called the first gospel. We are two chapters into the whole Bible, and God is already, this is the first gospel sermon that is being preached in the garden in the presence of the serpent and Adam and Eve because everything has been made a mess by their sin. And God in that moment says, I am going to do something about this. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the snake, between your offspring and her offspring. Even in the curse of the snake, there is a blessing. He's saying, I'm going to drive a wedge between sin and Satan and between the woman and her offspring. And then the last part of Genesis 3.15, it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, that word offspring in English is a translation of the Hebrew word that means seed. And both seed and offspring are both singular and plural in the same form. And so when God says, I will put enmity between the offspring, uh, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, that means in one sense, he's gonna put enmity between sin and, sin, sin and Satan and all of the woman's offspring. But also, it's not an accident that the latter half of that verse is translated with a singular, he because the offspring of the woman, he will bruise the head of the serpent. God is promising here in Genesis 3.15 that one day he will send someone who will crush the head of the serpent and once and for all defeat sin and death forever. It's the first gospel. So everything's a mess. It's our fault. The king is known by mercy. And then the last thing I want us to see in this text is that God's mercy is for everyone. God's mercy is for everyone. Look at verse 20. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve. Because why? Because she was the mother of all living. So if the promise and the curse is that there will be en en enmity between Satan and sin and between the offspring of the woman, the message is that the gospel is for everyone who is the offspring of the woman. And so if you are a man or a woman, if you are a human being descended from Adam and Eve, that promise, that message is for you. That for those who put their trust in the one who will crush the head of the serpent, one day all things will be made right. 
the, 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 the beautiful message of the gospel, and Kevin said it at the beginning, and we didn't compare notes before this. He took it right out of my manuscript, is this. God's gospel message is not clean up your mess and then come to me and we'll see if you did a good enough job. The message of the gospel of God is come to me as you are and I will clean up your mess. And may we not miss in this passage, may we not miss this fact, God did not forego his judgment. God did not let something slide. God did, not, God did not punish Adam and Eve to the full extent that he promised he would. But he did not stay his judgment. He just, he just restrained it for a time until the fullness of time had come and he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. God's judgment was poured out the cup of God's wrath was fully emptied, but it was not emptied on Adam and Eve or for anyone else who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It was poured out on a hill called Calvary outside the walls of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago as the Son of God hung dying on a cross and took the full force of God's judgment and wrath on sin. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we round third and head towards home on this message, uh, can I just ask us a question? What are we doing here? Why are we here? What is this deal that Midtown Fellowship Granny White is doing here at 3410 Granny White Road? Pike. Granny White Pike in Nashville, Tennessee. Why are we here? We are here because God has called us to be here and we are here because we believe that we are living in the midst of a world that is literally dying to hear the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they do not have to clean themselves up, that they can be fully known, fully loved, and fully approved in God, that he will take them as they are, love them as they are, and not leave them as they are. We are here not to have a, a cool club where everyone looks like us and talks like us and votes like us and a fun place to go on Sunday mornings where we can hang out with our friends and feel good about our social connections. That is not what this deal is. We are here to be on mission together, kicking in the gates of hell and shining a floodlight of God's love and his gospel into the darkness of the world that is around us. That is why we exist. We want to see Green Hills transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to see Nashville transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brentwood and Tennessee and the country and the world. But God has called us to this place for this time to, to be shining lights of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the first gospel, the second gospel, the third gospel, the fifth gospel, the 10th gospel, and the everlasting gospel. When you came in today, you had uh, hopefully one of these cards on your chair, or maybe you got handed one as you came in. If you don't have one, there are more where these came from. Um, two weeks from today is Easter Sunday. Chad has rented an enormous tent that we are putting out over the front parking lot. And uh, our hope and prayer is that that tent is filled to overflowing on Easter morning. Not so that we feel good about ourselves, that we can draw a big crowd. Not so that we feel good about being able to perform in front of a large audience of people. 
Our hope and prayer is that our parking lot out front is just teeming with people because Easter morning for about 50 minutes underneath that tent, we are going to proclaim one message. We're going to play one note over and over and over. We told Kevin and Brandon they can only play one note. (laughs) And this is the note. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And we are living in the middle of a community that is dying to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's our hope and prayer. That sometime today, might be in this moment, that would be amazing, might be this afternoon when you get home, that you will think, you will ask God to put someone on your heart, that you would put their name on this card and commit to praying over the next two weeks about God giving you an opportunity to invite them to Easter Sunday service. I hate being awkward more than anyone in this room. And I'm the pastor, one of them, in residence, pastor in residence, okay? (laughs) But listen, there is no greater moment to invite someone to church than Easter Sunday. There is, you will be shocked. There is some primordial sense inside of people that God put there that feels like they need to be in a church on Sunday morning, even if they don't think about church the other 364 days of the year. And so look, I know not everyone's going to do this, but, but we are not here just to hang out with each other. We are here to spread the amazing news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is no easier way than to invite a neighbor, a coworker, a family, someone that your friends hang out with, their parents, someone who makes your coffee when you pick it up in the mornings, whatever it is, to invite them to come. Hey, my church is having an Easter morning service, 10.30 on Easter Sunday morning. Would love for you to join us. Uh, That's our hope and prayer, is that you will take these cards, put a name on it, and not even, not even commit to asking them, just commit to praying that God might um, give you an opportunity to ask them. So the gospel message, it is for everyone. And I want to finish with this. There's one more verse we haven't really talked about, and it's verse 21. It might be the most tender verse in the whole passage. It says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Do you remember back um, at, at the beginning uh, of this chapter, after the sin, uh, what Adam and Eve do? They recognize that they're naked, and what do they do? They, they find some fig leaves and they try and make clothes out of them. I don't know if you've ever tried to make clothes out of leaves. Doesn't work so well. And God in his graciousness, before he sends them out of the garden, is like, I see that you have tried to cover your guilt and sin and shame with some leaves. Doesn't look, that, doesn't look like that's working out so well for you. Let me give you a few robes before I send you out. And so what's going on there? Do you guys remember why Joseph, why everyone knew that Joseph was the favorite child? Because he had a coat of many colors. Yeah, you can talk. Uh, There's this passage in 1 Samuel 18. Jonathan, son of Saul, best friends with David. He gives David a few items, and one of the things he gives him is his robe. And Saul, his dad, like loses his mind over it. Remember what the father says when the prodigal son comes home, what he tells his servants? He says, put a robe on him. See, through the biblical narrative, The robe is a sign of sonship. The robe gets worn by the heir. The robe is the one that the beloved child has. It's a sign to everyone who's the heir, who is the beloved son, who is the beloved daughter. And before God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, even though they have made a mess of everything, he clothes them with a robe so that they and everyone else will know and see that they are still his beloved children. And so it doesn't matter this morning Uh, who you are. 
Doesn't matter what you have done, who you have been with, where you are from, doesn't matter what kind of home you grew up in, if it was a home at all. Doesn't matter what your mom was like, what your dad was like, doesn't matter what you're like right now. God will clothe you with his robe. For those who put their faith and trust in the one who is to come, who will fully and finally crush the head of the serpent, defeat sin and death forever. For those who put their faith in that one, Jesus Christ, God says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Wear my robe. And one day you will walk with me again in the garden. That is a message that we need to hear. That is a message that our world needs to hear. And may we at Midtown Granny White be a people who live that gospel and who share that gospel with the world around us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house, uh, to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to worship you. God, we thank you for the promise and the hope and the good news, the, how unbelievable the gospel is. You take our sin and shame and you give us your righteousness in its place. I pray that you would open our eyes to see, our, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand a little bit more what your love for us means. And may we be so impacted by it that we cannot help but live it in every facet of our lives. God, we pray for those in our lives, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers who don't know you. We pray that you would work in their hearts and lives to show them who you are what you have done for them and the hope that is found in you. Thank you for being such a good God. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.